Section 17 of Yiddish Tales. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Yiddish Tales translated by Helena Frank and read by Adrian Pretzelis. Section 17. Yom Kippur by Eliezer David Rosenthal. Erev Yom Kippur. Mincha time. The eve of the Day of Atonement. At afternoon prayer time a solemn and sacred hour for every Jew. Every one feels as though he were born again. All the weekday worries that tapney hapney interests seem far, far away, or else they have hidden themselves in some corner. Every Jew feels a noble pride, an inward peace mingled with fear and awe. He knows that the yearly judgment day is approaching, when God Almighty will hold the scales in His hand, and weigh every man's merits against his transgressions. The sentence given on that day is one of life or death, no trifle. But the Jew is not so terrified as you might think. He has broad shoulders. Besides, he has a certain footing behind the upper windows. He has good advocates, and plenty of them. He has the Akidah, the binding of Isaac, and a long chain of ancestors and ancestresses who were put to death for the sanctification of the holy name, who allowed themselves to be burnt and roasted for the sake of God's Torah. Nishkosh, things are not so bad. The Lord of all may just remember that, and look aside a little. Is he not the compassionate, the merciful? The shadows lengthen and lengthen. Jews are everywhere in commotion. Some hurry home straight from the bath, drops of bath-water dripping from beard and earlocks. They have not even dried their hair properly in their haste. It is time to prepare for the davening the praying. Some are already on their way to shul, robed in white. Nearly every Jew carries in one hand a large, well-packed talus-bag, which to-day, besides the prayer-scarf, holds the whole Jewish outfit, a bulky prayer-book, Tehillim, a book of Psalms, a Likut Zevi, and so on. And in the other hand two wax candles, one a large one, that is the light of life, and the other a small one, a shrunken-looking thing, which is the soul light. The Tamshavat Besamedresh presents at this moment the following picture. The floor is covered with fresh hay, and the dust and smell of the hay fill the whole building. Some of the men are standing at their prayers, beating their breasts in all seriousness. We have trespassed, we have been faithless, we have robbed, with an occasional sob of contrition. Others are very busy setting up their wax lights in boxes filled with sand. One of them, a young man who cannot live without it, betakes himself on the platform and repeats a Bless ye the Lord. Meanwhile, another comes slyly and takes out two of the candles standing before the platform planting his own in their place. Not far from the ark stands the shamus, with a strap in his hand, 
and all the foremost householders go up to him, lay themselves down with their faces to the ground, and the shamus deals them out thirty-nine blows apiece, and not one of them bears him any grudge. Even Reb Groinam, from whom the shamus never hears anything from one Yom Kippur to another but may you be, and rascal, impudence, brazen face, spendthrift, carrion, dog of all dogs, and, not infrequently, Reb Groinam allows himself to apply his right hand to the shamus's cheek, and the latter has to take it all in a spirit of love. This same Red Groinam now humbly approaches the same shamus, lies quietly down with his face to the ground, stretches himself out, and the shamus deliberately counts the strokes up to thirty-nine malcoats. Covered with hay, Reb Groinam slowly rises, a piteous expression on his face, just as if he had been well thrashed, and he pushes a coin into the shamus's hand. This is evidently the shamus's day. Today he can take his revenge on his householders for the insults and injuries of a whole year. But if you want to be in the thick of it all, you must stand in the ante-room by the door, where people are crowding round the plates for collections. The treasurer sits beside a little table with the directors of the congregation. The largest plate lies before them. To one side of them sits the chazan, the cantor, with his plate, and beside the chazan several besamedresh youths with theirs. With every plate lies a paper with a written notice, visiting the sick, supporting the fallen, clothing the naked, Talmud Torah, refuge for the poor, and so on. Over one plate marked the return to the land of Israel, presides a modern young man, a Zionist. Everyone wishing to enter the Besamedresh must first go to the plates marked Call to the Torah and Seat in the Shul, and put in what is his due, and then throw a few kopecks into the other plates. Beryl Zop bustled up to the plate Seat in the Shul, gave what was expected of him, popped a few coppers into the other plates, and prepared to recite the afternoon prayer. He wanted to pause a little between the words of his prayer, to attend to their meaning, to impress upon himself that this was the eve of the Day of Atonement. But idle thoughts kept coming into his head, as though on purpose to annoy him, and his mind was all over the place at once. The words of the prayers got mixed up with the idea of oats, straw, wheat and barley, and however much trouble he took to drive these idle thoughts away, he did not succeed. "'Blow the great trumpet of our deliverance!' shouted Beryl, and remembered the while that Ivan owed him ten measures of wheat. "'Lift up the ensign to gather our exiles!' and I made a mistake in Stephen's account by thirty kopecks. Beryl saw that it was impossible for him to pray with attention, and he began to reel off the Shimona Esrei, and not until he reached the Vidui could he collect his scattered thoughts and realize what he was saying. 
when he raised his hand to beat his breast at we have trespassed, we have robbed, the hand remained hanging in the air half-way. A shudder went through his limbs. The letters of the words, we have robbed, began to grow before his eyes. They became gigantic. They turned strange colours, red, blue, green, and yellow. Now they took the form of large frogs. They got bigger and bigger, crawled into his eyes, croaked in his ears. You are a thief, a robber. You have stolen and plundered. You think nobody saw, that it would all run quite smoothly. But you are wrong. We shall stand before the throne of glory and cry, You are a thief, a robber. Beryl stood some time with his hand raised midway in the air. The whole affair of the hundred roubles rose before his eyes. A couple of months ago he had gone into the house of Red Moshe Chalfon. The latter had just gone out. There was no one else in the room. Nobody had even seen him come in. The key was in the desk. Beryl had looked at it, had hardly touched it. The drawer had opened as though of itself. Several hundred rouble notes lay glistening before his eyes. Just that day Beryl had received a very unpleasant letter from the father of his daughter's bridegroom, and to make matters worse the author of the letter was in the right. Beryl had been putting off the marriage for two years, and the Mechutan, the father of the groom, wrote quite plainly that unless the wedding took place after Sukkot, he should return him the contract. Return the contract! The fiery letters burnt into Beryl's brain. He knew his Mechutan well, the misnagged. He wouldn't hesitate to tear up a marriage contract either and when it's a question of a by no means pretty girl of twenty and odd years, and the kind of bridegroom any one might be glad to have secured for his daughter, and then to think that only one of those hundred-rouble notes lying tossed together in that drawer would help him out of all his troubles. And then the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, whispers in his ear, Beryl, now or never, there will be an end to all your worry. Don't you see? It's a godsend." He, Beryl, wrestled with him hard. He remembers it all distinctly, and he can hear now the faint little voice of the Yetzatov, the good inclination. Beryl! to become a thief in one's latter years, you who so carefully avoided even the smallest deceit. Fie, for shame! If God will, he can help you, by honest means, too." But the voice of the Yetzatov was so feeble, so husky, and the Yetzirah suggested in his other ear, Do you know what? Borrow a hundred roubles. Who talks of stealing? You will earn some money before long, and then you can pay him back. It's a charitable loan on his part, only that he doesn't happen to know of it. Isn't it plain to be seen that it's a godsend? 
If you don't call this providence, what is it? Are you going to take more than you really need? You know your mechutten? Have you taken a good look at that old maid of yours? You recollect the bridegroom? Well, the mechutten will be kind and mild as milk. The bridegroom will be a silken son-in-law, the ugly old maid a young wife. Fool! God and men will envy you. And he, Beryl, lost his head. His thoughts flew hither and thither like frightened birds, and he no longer knew which of the two voices was that of the Yetzatov, and no one saw him leave Moshe Chalfan's house, and still his hand remains suspended in mid-air, still it does not fall against his breast and there is a cold perspiration on his brow. Beryl started as though out of his sleep. He had noticed that people were beginning to eye him as he stood with his hand held at a distance from his person. He hastily rattled through the Alchate, concluded the Shimona Esrei, and went home. At home he didn't dawdle. He only washed his hands recited Hamotzi Lechem, and that was all. The food stuck in his throat. He said grace, returned to shul, put on the talus, and started to intone tunefully the Ashamnu, the prayer of expiation. The lighted wax candles, the last rays of the sun stealing in through the windows of the Besamidresh, the congregation entirely robed in white, and enfolded in the talisim, the intense seriousness depicted on all faces, the hum of voices, and the bitter weeping that penetrated from the women's gallery, all this suited Beryl's mood, his contrite heart. Beryl had recited the Ashamnu with deep feeling. Tears poured from his eyes. His own broken voice went right through his heart. Every word found an echo there, and he felt it in every limb. Beryl stood before God like a little child before its parents. He wept and told all that was in his heavily laden heart, the full tale of his cares and troubles. Beryl was pleased with himself. He felt that he was not saying the words anyhow, just rolling them off his tongue, but he was really performing an act of penitence with his whole heart. He felt remorse for his sins, and God is a God of compassion and mercy, who will certainly pardon him. Therefore is my heart sad, began Beryl, that the sin which a man commits against his neighbour cannot be atoned for, even on the Day of Atonement, unless he asks his neighbour's forgiveness. Therefore is my heart broken, and my limbs tremble, because even the day of my death cannot atone for this sin." Beryl began to recite this in pleasing, artistic fashion, weeping and whimpering like a spoiled child and drawling out the words, 
when it grew dark before his eyes. Beryl had suddenly became aware that he was in the position of one about to enter through an open door. He advances, he must enter, it is a question of life and death, and without any warning, just as he is stepping across the threshold, the door is shut from within with a terrible bang, and he remains standing outside. And he has read this in the Ashamnu? With fear and fluttering he reads it over again, looking narrowly at every word. A cold sweat covers him. The words prick him like pins. Are these two voices his pitiless judges? Are they the expression of his sentence? Is he already condemned? Ay, ay, you are guilty, flicker the two verses on the page before him, and prayer and tears are no longer of any avail. His heart cried to God, Have pity, merciful father, a grown-up girl, what am I to do with her? And his father wanted to break off the engagement. As soon as I have earned the money, I will give it back. But he knew all the time that these were useless subterfuges. The Rebbeinu Shalolem can only pardon the sin committed against himself. The sin committed against man cannot be atoned for, even on the Day of Atonement. Beryl took another look at the Yashamnu, the prayer of expiation. The words unless he asks his neighbour's forgiveness, danced before his eyes. A ray of hope crept into his despairing heart. One way is left open to him. He can confess to Moshe Chalfan. But the hope was quickly extinguished. Is that a small matter? What of my honour, my good name, and what of the match? Mercy, O oh father! he cried, have mercy. Beryl proceeded no further with the Ashamnu. He stood lost in his melancholy thoughts. His whole life passed before his eyes. He, Beryl, had never licked honey. Trouble had been his in plenty. He had known cares and worries, but God had never abandoned him. It had frequently happened to him in the course of his life to think that he was lost, to give up all his hope, but each time God had extracted him unexpectedly from his difficulty, and not only that, but lawfully, honestly, Jewishly. And now he had suddenly lost his trust in the providence of his dear name. Donkey! Thus Beryl abused himself. Went to look for trouble, did you? Now you've got it. Sold yourself body and soul for one hundred roubles. Thief! 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 It did Beryl good to abuse himself like this. It gave him a sort of pleasure to aggravate his wounds. Beryl, sunk in his sad reflections, has forgotten where he is in the world. The congregation has finished the Ashamnu, and is ready for Kol Nidre. The Chazan is at his post at the reading-desk on the platform. 
two of the principal well-to-do Jews with Torahs in their hands on each side of him. One of them is Moshe Chalfan. There is a deep silence in the building. The very last rays of the sun are slanting through the window and mingling with the flames of the wax candles. With the consent of the all-present, and with the consent of this congregation, we give leave to pray with them that have transgressed, startled Beryl's ears. It was Moshe Chalfan's voice. The voice was low, sweet, and sad. Beryl gave a side-glance at where Moshe Chalfan was standing, and it seemed to him that Moshe Chalfan was doing the same to him only Moshe Chalfan was not looking into his eyes, but deep into his heart, and there reading the word thief. And Moshe Chalfan is permitting the people to pray together with him, Beryl the thief. Mercy, mercy, compassionate God, cried Beryl's heart in its despair. They had concluded Myriv recited the first four chapters of the Tehillim and the Song of Unity, and the people went home to lay in new strength for the morrow. There remained only a few who spent the greater part of the night repeating Mizmorim, intoning the Mishnah, and so on. They snatched an occasional doze on the bare floor, overlaid with a wisp of hay, an old cloak under their head. Beryl also stayed the night in the Bessamidresh. He sat down in a corner in a robe and talus, and began reciting Mizmorim with pleasing pathos, and he went on until overtaken by sleep. At first he resisted. He took a nice pinch of snuff, rubbed his eyes, collected his thoughts, but it was no good. The covers of the Tehillim seemed to have been greased, for they continually slipped from his grasp. The printed lines had grown crooked and twisted. His head felt dreadfully heavy, and his eyelids clung together. His nose was forever drooping towards the Tehillim. He made every effort to keep awake, started up every time as though he had burnt himself, but sleep was the stronger of the two. Gradually he slid from the bench onto the floor, the Tehillim slipped finally from between his fingers, his head dropped upon the hay, and he fell sweetly asleep. And Beryl had a dream. Yom Kippur, and yet there was a fair in the town, the kind of fair one calls an earthquake a fair such as Beryl does not remember having seen these many years, so crowded is it with men and merchandise. There is something of everything—cattle, horses, sheep, corn, and fruit. All the Tamshevet Jews are strolling round with their wives and children. There is buying and selling. The air is full of noise and shouting. The whole fair is boiling and hissing and humming like a kettle. One runs this way, and one runs that. This one is driving a cow, and that one leading home a horse by the rein, the other buying a whole cartload of corn. Beryl is all astonishment and curiosity. 
how is it possible for Jews to busy themselves with commerce on Yom Kippur, on such a holy day? As far back as he can remember, Jews used to spend the whole day in shul, in linen socks, white robe, and talus. They prayed and wept. And now what has come over them that they should be trading on Yom Kippur as if it were a common weekday, in shoes and boots? This last thing struck him more than anything. Perhaps it is all a dream, thought Beryl in his sleep. But no, it is no dream. Here am I, strolling round the fair, wide awake. And the screaming and the row in my ears, is that a dream too? And my having this very minute been bumped on the shoulder by a Gentile going past me with a horse, is that a dream? But if the whole world is taking part in the fair, it's evidently the proper thing to do." Meanwhile he was watching a peasant with a horse, and he liked the look of the horse so much that he bought it and mounted it, and he looked at it from where he sat astride and saw the horse was a horse, but at the self-same time it was Moshe Halfen as well. Beryl wondered. How is it possible for it to be at once a horse and a man? But his own eyes told him it was so. He wanted to dismount, but the horse bears him to a shop. Here he climbed down and asked for a pound of sugar. Beryl kept his eyes on the scales, and, a fresh surprise, where they should have been weighing sugar, they were weighing his good and bad deeds, and the two scales were nearly equally laden, and oscillated up and down in the air. Suddenly they threw a sheet of paper at the scale that held his bad deeds. Beryl looked to see. It was the hundred-rouble note which he had appropriated at Moshe Halfen's, but it was now much larger, bordered with black, and the letters and numbers were red as fire. The piece of paper was frightfully heavy. It was all two men could do to carry it to the weighing-machine, and when they had thrown it with all their might onto the scale, something snapped, and the scale went down, down, down. At that moment a man sleeping at Beryl's head stretched out a foot and gave Beryl a kick in the head. Beryl awoke. Not far from him sat a grey-haired old Jew, huddled together, enfolded in a talus and robe, repeating Mismorim with a melancholy chant and a broken, quavering voice. Beryl caught the words. Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together the latter end of the wicked shall be cut off." Beryl looked round in fright. Where is he? He had quite forgotten that he had remained for the night in the Bessamedresh. He gazed round with sleepy eyes, and they fell on some white heaps wrapped in robes and talisim, while from their midst came the low, hoarse, tearful voices of two or three men who had not gone to sleep, and who were repeating Mismorim. Many of the candles were already sputtering, the wax was melting into the sand. 
The flames rose and fell and rose again, flaring brightly, and the pale moon looked in at the windows and poured her silvery light over the fantastic scene. Beryl grew icy cold, and a dreadful shuddering went through his limbs. He had not yet remembered that he was spending the night in the Bessemedresh. He imagined that he was dead and astray in limbo. The white heaps which he sees are graves, actual graves, and there among the graves sit a few sinful souls and bewail and lament their transgressions, and he, Beryl, cannot even weep. He is a fallen one, lost for ever, he is condemned to wander, to roam everlastingly among the graves. By degrees, however, he is called to mind where he was, and collected his wits. Only then he remembered his fearful dream. No, he decided within himself, I have lived till now without the one hundred roubles, and I will continue to live without them. If the Rebbeiner Shalom wishes to help me, he will do so without them too. My soul and my portion in the Olam Haba are dearer to me. Only let Moshe Chalfan come in to pray, I will tell him the whole truth and avert misfortune." This decision gave him courage. He washed his hands and sat down again to the Mizmorim. Every few minutes he glanced up at the window, to see if it were not beginning to dawn, and if Reb Moshe Chalfan was not coming along to shul. The day broke. With the first sunbeams Beryl's fears and terrors began little by little to dissipate and diminish. His resolve to restore the hundred roubles weakened considerably. If I don't confess, thought Beryl, wrestling in spirit with temptation, I risk my world to come. If I do confess, what will my Hanselaya say to it? He writes, either the wedding takes place or the contract is dissolved. What shall I do when his father gets to hear about it? There will be a stain on my character. The marriage contract will be annulled and I shall be left, without my good name and with my ugly old maid. What is to be done? Help! What is to be done?" The people began to gather in the shawl. The reader of Shakaris, the morning service, intoned, He is Lord of the Universe, to the special Yom Kippur tune. A few householders and young men supported him, and Beryl heard through it all only, help! What is to be done?" And suddenly he beheld Moshe Chalfan. Beryl quickly rose from his place. He wanted to make a rush at Moshe Chalfan, but after all he remained where he was and sat down again. "'I must think it over and discuss it with my Chancellor,' was Beryl's decision. Beryl stood up to pray with the congregation. He was again wishful to pray with fervour, to collect his thoughts and to attend to the meaning of the words, but try as he would, he couldn't. Quite other things came into his head. 
a dream, a fair, a horse, Moshe Chalfen, Chanzaleia, Oats, Barley, this world and the next, were all mixed up together in his mind, and the words of the prayers skipped about like black patches before his eyes. He wanted to say he was sorry, to cry, but he only made curious grimaces, and could not squeeze out so much as a single tear. Beryl was very dissatisfied with himself. He finished the shakaris, stood through the additional service, and proceeded to devour the long piutim. The question, what is to be done, left him no peace, and he was really reciting the piutim to try and stupefy himself, to dull his brain. So it went on till Unasanatoikov. The congregation began to prepare for Unasanatoikov, coughed to clear their throats, and pulled Tilisim over their heads. The Chazan sat down for a minute to rest, and unbuttoned his shroud. His face was pale and perspiring, and his eyes betrayed a great weariness. From the women's gallery came a sound of weeping and wailing. Beryl had drawn his talus over his head, and started reciting with earnestness and enthusiasm, Unasanatoikov Kedushahayom, we will express the mighty holiness of this day, for it is tremendous and awful, on which thy kingdom is exalted, and thy throne established in grace, whereupon thou art seated in truth. Verily, it is thou who art judge and arbiter. Thou knowest all, and art witness, writer, sigliator, recorder, and teller. And thou recallest all forgotten things, and openest the book of remembrance, and the book reads itself, and every man's handwriting is there. These words opened the source of Beryl's tears, and he sobbed unaffectedly. Every sentence cut him to the heart like a sharp knife, and especially the passage, And thou recallest all forgotten things, and openest the book of remembrance, and the book reads itself, and every man's handwriting is there, and at that very moment the book of remembrance was lying open before the Lord of the universe with the handwritings of all men. It contains his own as well, the one which he wrote with his own hand that day when he took away the hundred-rouble note. He pictures how his soul flew up to heaven while he slept, and entered everything in the eternal book, and now the letters stood before the throne of glory, and cried, Beryl is a thief, Beryl is a robber and he has the impudence to stand and pray before God, he, the offender, the transgressor, and the shawl does not fall upon his head. The congregation concluded Unasanatoikov, and the chazan began, And the great trumpet of ram's horn shall be sounded. And still Beryl stood with the talus over his head. Suddenly, he heard the words, And the angels are dismayed, 
Fear and trembling seize hold of them as they proclaim, as swiftly as birds, and say, Hina yom hadin. This is the day of judgment. The words penetrated into the marrow of Beryl's bones, and he shuddered from head to foot. The words, Hina yom hadin, this is the day of judgment, reverberated in his ears like a peal of thunder. He imagined the angels were hastening to him with one speed and with one swoop to seize and drag him before the throne of glory, and the piteous wailing that came from the women's court was for him, for his wretched soul, for his endless misfortune. No, 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 he resolved, come what may, let him annul the contract. Let them point at me with their fingers as at a thief, if they choose. Let my Hansa Leia lose her chance. I will take it all in good part, if I may only save my unhappy soul. The minute the Kedusha is over, I shall go to Moshe Chalfan and tell him the whole story, and beg him to forgive me. The Chazan came to the end of Unasanatoikov. The congregation resumed their seats. Beryl also returned to his place, and did not go up to Moshe Chalfan. "'Help! What shall I do? What shall I do?' he thought, and he struggled with his conscience. "'Chanzalaya will lay me on the fire. She will cry her life out. The Mechutan, the bridegroom!' The additional service and the afternoon service were over. People were making ready for the conclusion service, Naila. The shadows were once more lengthening. The sun was once more sinking in the west. The shul-goy began to light candles and lamps and place them on the tables and the window-ledges. Jews with faces white from exhaustion sat in the ante-room, resting and refreshing themselves with a pinch of snuff, or a drop of hartshorn, and a few words of conversation. Everyone feels more cheerful and in better humour. What had to be done has been done and well done. The Reboina Shel Olam has received his due. They have mortified themselves a whole day, fasted continuously, recited prayers, and begged forgiveness. Now surely the Almighty will do his part, accept the Jewish prayers, and have compassion on his people Israel. Only Beryl sits in a corner by himself. He also is wearied and exhausted. He also has fasted, prayed, wept, mortified himself like the rest. But he knows that the whole of his toil and trouble has been thrown away. He sits troubled, gloomy and depressed. He knows that now they have reached Naila, that he has still time to repent, that the door of heaven will stand open a little while longer. His repentance may yet pass through. Otherwise, yet a little while, and the gates of mercy will be shut, and too late. Oh, open the gate to us, even while it is closing, sounded in Beryl's ears and heart. 
yet a little while, and it will be too late. No, no, shrieked Beryl to himself, I will not lose my soul, my world to come. Let Hanselaya burn me and roast me. I will take it all in good part, so that I don't lose my oil of habar. Beryl rose from his seat and went up to Moisha Halfen. Reb Moisha, a word with you, he whispered into his ear. Afterwards, when the prayers are done. No, 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 shrieked Beryl below his voice. No, now at once. Moisha Halfen stood up. Beryl led him out of the Bessamedresh and aside. Reb Moisha, kind soul, have pity on me and forgive me, cried Beryl, and burst into sobs. God be with you, Beryl. What has come over you all at once? asked Reb Moisha, in astonishment. Listen to me, Reb Moisha, said Beryl, still sobbing. The hundred roubles you lost a few weeks ago are in my house. God knows the truth. I didn't take them out of wickedness. I came into your house. The key was in the drawer. There was no one in the room. That day I had a letter from my Mechutin that he'd break off his son's engagement if the wedding didn't take place to time. My girl is ugly and old. The bridegroom is a fine young man, a precious stone. I opened the drawer in spite of myself and saw the bank-notes. You see how it was. My Mechutin is a misnagid, a flint-hearted screw. I took out the note. But it is shortening my years. God knows what I bore and suffered at the time. Tonight I will bring you the note back. Forgive me. Let the Mechutin break off the match if he chooses. Let the woman fret away her years. So long as I am rid of the serpent that is gnawing at my heart and gives me no peace, I never before touched a rouble belonging to any one else, and become a thief in my latter years, I won't. Moisha Halfen did not answer him for a little while. He took out his snuff and had a pinch. Then he took out of the bosom of his robe a great red handkerchief wiped his nose and reflected a minute or two. Then he said quietly, If a match were broken off through me, I should be sorry. You certainly behaved as you should not have in taking the money without leave, but it is written, Judge not thy neighbour till thou hast stood in his place. You shall keep the hundred roubles. Come to-night and bring me an I.O.U., and begin to repay me little by little." "'What are you, an angel?' exclaimed Beryl, weeping. "'God forbid!' replied Moshe Halfen quietly. "'I am what you are. You are a Jew, and I also am a Jew.'" End of Yom Kippur by Eliezer David Rosenthal